Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. It's been 3,125 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 209 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. As always, let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, the Russian armed forces are so desperate for soldiers they are gutting military academies for field officers and moving workers from critical infrastructure to the front lines. We assess none of these efforts will change the battlefield situation. Second, we assess the Russian idea of now rushing sham referendums for the annexation of Donetsk, Luhansk, and Kherson are implausible and will not change the diplomatic or military reality in Ukraine. Third, we maintain the continued Russian offensive on Bakhmut Solidar is entirely pointless and will not provide a tactical or strategic victory. Fourth, we maintain our assessment that as the situation for Russian troops in Kherson worsens due to supply issues and conditions, forces will seek to surrender. Fifth, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing collapse with their available resources. And finally, there is now a small but noteworthy risk that as the, quote, special military operation fails, the Putin regime will be at risk of political upheaval that could result in government changes. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. Ukraine sent an offer to Russian forces east of the Inulets River and north of the Dnipro to surrender. Natalia Hemenyuk of the United Coordinating Press Center of Operational Command South, or OCS, said, quote, The fire control that we maintain over the crossings and transport arteries across the Dnipro River is making them realize that they are trapped between the Ukrainian forces and the right bank of the river, namely, the unit stationed in this part of Kherson Oblast. Hemenyuk claimed that some Russian commanders had reached out to negotiate surrender terms, but she did not specify the size of the units involved. Pictures of recently liberated Potomkin emerged, showing similar destruction to neighboring Viscopilia and plenty of Z logos painted on farm and construction equipment the Russians requisitioned during their occupation. The Russian Ministry of Defense reported their forces attacked Ukrainian positions in Bilohirka 
destroying three vehicles and causing up to 15 casualties. OCS also reported that a platoon-sized group of Russian forces attempted to advance from Davidi Brid and were unsuccessful. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Bezimen was shelled, indicating that the width and depth of the Inulets River bridgehead have been maintained. Pro-Russian account Rybar reported that Ukrainian reinforcements had arrived in Mirolyubivka, providing confirmation that the settlement had been liberated. The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, First Army Corps, claimed that Ukrainian forces attempted to advance on Ternovipodi, and they captured two Ukrainian soldiers. They claim that one of the soldiers captured is a, quote, invalid because he is missing two fingers on his right hand and was deployed anyway. In a graphic photo, his left hand is badly swollen and covered in blood, raising questions about the veracity of the claims. Another Russian barge, piloted by a pontoon bridge tug, was sunk by Ukrainian artillery on the Dnipro River near Novokokhovka. The barge was carrying weapons, equipment, and military personnel. Operational Command South, or OCS, also felt snarky today and congratulated the, quote, occupiers for joining the, quote, underwater fleet. Satellite images showed that Russian engineers were close to providing a temporary crossing at the Kachovka Dam, but Ukraine was apparently looking at the same pictures. The dam complex was hit by rockets fired from HIMARS, with locals reporting that smoke was rising over the area close to where the bridge repairs were ongoing. The Ukrainian Air Force flew 15 ground support missions, and ground forces carried out 260 fire missions. They reported that Russian troop and equipment reserves in Kherson, Bereslav, and Kachovka were targeted. International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Director General Rafael Grossi condemned the missile strike on the southern Ukraine nuclear power plant, saying, quote, Today's explosion near the South Ukraine nuclear power plant all too clearly demonstrates the potential dangers also at other nuclear facilities in the country. Any military action that threatens nuclear safety and security is unacceptable and must stop immediately. End quote. The strike did not cause any reactors to go into automated shutdown, and the main connection to the Ukrainian power grid was not severed. Our assessment of the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv is unchanged from September 11th. We recapped it for you on yesterday's episode around minute three. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. Enerhoatam reported to the IAEA that one of the power lines supplying the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was disconnected. The cause was unknown, but did not appear to be related to shelling or an attack. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Nikopol, Marchanets, and Chervonohryorivka were attacked by Grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. The region suffered its worst attack in over a month, with over 100 rockets and artillery shells blasting the area. There was significant damage, but no fatalities were reported. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. Fighting is ongoing in certain areas, but there has been a request to maintain operational security. 
Otherwise, there was only sporadic artillery along the line of conflict from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv to Mali Sherbaki. The Ukrainian Air Force continued to suppress and destroy enemy air defenses across the region. Positional fighting and Ukraine actively targeting Russian air defenses with near impunity are fueling concerns among Russian mill bloggers that the next large counteroffensive will launch from Huliapola or Orkhiv toward Melitopol. Similar to earlier claims about southwest Donetsk, pro-Russian accounts report that Ukrainian forces are clearing minefields and other obstacles for an upcoming offensive. We cannot confirm the veracity of their claims. The airfield in Melitopol was attacked again by rockets fired from HIMARS, and loud explosions rocked the city, where the security situation for Russian troops continues to deteriorate. A second attack struck the industrial grain elevators in the city, with black smoke rising from the buildings. Moving on to southwest Donetsk, illumination flares fell in the Petrovsky district of Russian-occupied Donetsk. Videos showed three parachute flares— also known as star shells, falling into the city. It is unclear which belligerent fired them or for what purpose. Artillery fire remained sporadic, with heavy fire concentrated on Avdivka. Pro-Russian account Rybar claimed that Ukrainian forces attempted offensives in Marinka and Piski, while the DNR militia did not report any ground fighting along the entire front. On the same day, the report shifted from offensives to, quote, positional fighting. Some quick assessment here. The DNR loves showing videos of Ukrainian soldiers being killed. The grislier, the better. The lack of reporting from First Army Corps leadership and nothing from NASA fire information for resource management systems, that's firms, puts us in the position of saying we believe that Rybar is mistaken. The only reported Russian offensive by GSAFU was on Novomikhailivka, which was unsuccessful. Army Inform, which is the official Twitter channel for the Ukrainian armed forces, wrote, quote, Dear Mariupol and its residents, the armed forces of Ukraine will return very soon. Your glory as a city made of steel has already been written into the history books. End quote. Now, this isn't as strongly worded as the pre-counteroffensive telegram messages in Kherson and Kharkiv that said to prepare food, water, and essential items, but it caught our attention. Russian mill bloggers continue to wring their hands about a potential Ukrainian offensive launched from Vulidar, 75 kilometers away from the beaches of the Azov Sea. Pro-Russian accounts have shifted their messaging around the alleged Ukrainian troop buildup near Vulidar, now stating they have been moved to the area to defend from a pending DNR offensive. Okay, you know what? Sidebar here. Let's discuss this. A week of reviewing war crime photos and videos has made the team just a little salty. What offensive? The 1st Army Corps is combat destroyed. The recently formed 3rd Army Corps, which was combat destroyed before it arrived in Ukraine at 30% power, was all but destroyed in its first combat deployment. The DNR has deployed the goon squad to every corner of the oblast to find anyone with a penis, a pulse, and two functioning brain cells to put in a uniform. Russia has 25 to 30,000 troops trapped in Kherson. They lost more than an army's worth of combat strength in Kharkiv less than a week ago, and the Wagner Group is pounding its head against the wall in Bakhmut for no reason beyond that it's profitable for management. 
It has been 58 days since the DNR launched its offensive to capture Pisky, and saying it is fully under Russian control at this point is almost an act of pity. Last week, Rybar claimed that Ukraine was digging up their minefields. Did they put them back? There isn't going to be a large-scale offensive in Vulidar led by the DNR. I'm sorry, it's not happening. WTF, guys. Okay. Sorry. Just really salty, okay? In Bakhmut, we finally have something different to talk about. There weren't any significant attempts to advance on Solidar, Bakhmut, or Bakhmutska today. Russian forces continued their bombardment and airstrikes on the eastern outskirts of Bakhmut. Pavlo Kirilenko, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that two people might be trapped in the rubble of an apartment building that was hit by a bomb during an overnight strike. Private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, continued their attempts to advance into Vesela Dolina, Odradivka, and Mikolaev Kadruha without success, and added an attempt to advance on Kurdyomivka. Wagner has secured an electrical substation on the eastern edge of Mikolaev Kadruha, with a video showing them within the transformer farm. There has been fighting to capture the area for two months. One of our favorite things is when Russian forces out their previous lies when they release what they think is a flex video. Thanks to the DNR militia, we have absolute proof that the Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat have not had success in Mayorsk. It gets better, or worse depending on which lens you're looking through. They've been pushed back from the train station. A video published today showed artillery shelling of the homes south of the railroad yards, indicating that Chechen troops can't possibly be north of that position. GSAFU reported that there was an attack on Mayorsk and it was unsuccessful. Yep, we know. We saw the video. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, Wargonzo withdrew their reporters from Lehman and claimed that Ukraine was attacking from the west and the northwest, with Russian forces suffering losses. Some assessment here. We're becoming increasingly convinced that Ukrainian forces have no desire or plan to attack Lehman head-on. It is more likely they'll continue with their encirclement strategy. The withdrawal of Wargonzo indicates that its leader, Semyon Pegov, no longer believes that victory is possible in the city. We have our doubts, though, that anything more than interdiction and positional fighting to hold Russian troops in Lehman is happening. Ukrainian forces reportedly made incremental progress toward Koroviyar and moved closer to Dobrysheve, putting additional pressure on the ground lines of communication, called G-locks, those are supply lines, into Lehman. Fighting for control of Rupzi continued. In recently liberated Ozern, Russian forces carpet-bombed the village with thermite. Often mistaken for white phosphorus, thermite is incendiary and burns as high as 2,000 degrees Celsius. Serhi Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that a base for Russian troops and equipment in Novoida was attacked, likely with rockets fired by HIMARS. Haidai claims that up to 50 military vehicles were destroyed in the attack. The town is a key transit hub between Severodonetsk and Starobysk. Satellite images show several buildings were destroyed in a recent attack. He also claimed that the weekend rocket attack on Svatov, which killed between 180 to 200 Russian soldiers, 
left the unit combat destroyed with a 70% casualty rate. On September 16th, the Russian 208th Separate Cossack Motorized Rifle Infantry Regiment and the 4th Brigade, both of the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, got into a running battle between themselves in an almost day-long friendly fire incident. Fighting stretched across Novodruzhevsk, Shipailivka, and Zolotorivka, all suburbs of Lysychansk. The incident left 21 LNR militia members dead and 53 wounded. A lack of any functional radio communication equipment has been a severe problem for LNR military units for months. Some assessment here? Given the operational environment on September 16th, the chaotic retreat of Russian forces, and the well-documented problem that LNR forces lack radio communications, it is highly probable this incident occurred. Just days earlier, the Russian Ministry of Defense decided to disable cellular phone networks in Luhansk, eliminating an unsecured but viable communication channel. Additionally, this may have fueled the rumors of fighting east of Bilohorivka, in Luhansk, and Ukrainian troops advancing on Lysychansk. There were multiple reports from Ukrainian and Russian sources of heavy fighting in this area on this date that appear to have amounted to nothing. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Let's move on to the Kharkiv region. After denying that Ukrainian forces successfully crossed the Oskil River at Dovorichna, Hryanikivka, Dovorichne, pro-Russian sources now claim that a pontoon bridge used by Ukraine to cross the Oskil was destroyed. Pro-Russian unaffiliated journalist Valentina Nekhinov has left Lehman and moved to the eastern outskirts of Kupyansk. Nekhinov claims that Russian forces have reoccupied the city's eastern half, but provided no evidence and reported from outside the city. He also reported that Ukraine has complete fire control over the eastern half of Kupyansk and that any Russian vehicles attempting to enter the city are attacked by drone-directed artillery and mortar fire. Russian forces have recaptured the Pidliman and moved back into Borova. It was reported that Russian troops were occupying homes, stealing the cars and trucks of the residents, and digging trenches and other defenses in Borova and along the east bank of the Oskil. Some assessment here. Building a defensive line at Borova was a logical move by Russian military leaders. It delays Ukraine from capturing the P-79 highway G-lock, and provides the first line of defense for the critical Russian transit and supply hub of Svatov in Luhansk. Russian forces blew up part of the dam in Oskil, with water flow increasing on the Oskil River and eventually into the Siversky Donets. The increase in water level took out the shallow water crossing Russian forces established in August that Ukraine captured. Ukraine has already established a crossing in Bohorodichne, providing an alternative G-lock into the region east of the Oskil River that Russia still controls. Pro-Russian account Rybar reported that seven T-72 variant tanks captured by Ukraine during the Kharkiv counteroffensive have already been deployed with the 14th Separate Mechanized Brigade. In the Kiev region... Okay, real talk? 
We didn't know exactly where to put this story, but there's been so much awful with war crimes coverage we figured our readers and listeners could use a little bit of a laugh. About a hundred kilometers south of Kiev in Volodarka, Ukraine may have deployed a secret weapon. Camels. Puzzled drivers stopped and took photos and videos of a herd of camels grazing on the side of the road. We're not sure if they escaped from a NATO biolab researching the development of winter combat camels that only spit at Russian soldiers, if the circus is coming to town, or if a camel rancher had their herd escape. They all appeared well-fed and happy to ignore the gawkers while munching on Ukrainian grass. We have so many questions, and we just hope they aren't animatronics concealing secret Iranian combat drone launchers. Okay, it's definitely not that. They are just some happy camels. Moving on to the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, the British Ministry of Defense confirmed an earlier report that the Black Sea Fleet has relocated its Kilo-class submarines from their home port of Sevastopol to Novorossiysk in southern Russia. One of the key reasons Russia invaded Crimea in 2014 was to take control of the naval base in Sevastopol. The relocation of the diesel-powered attack submarines was likely due to the security situation and Ukraine's capability to strike the Crimean coast. It is a condemnation of the state of the Black Sea Fleet and indicates a deep concern about the capabilities of Harpoon anti-ship missiles. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan told the United States network PBS that Russian President Vladimir Putin is ready to negotiate with Kyiv on ending the war. Erdogan asked Putin to, quote, return Crimea to its rightful owners as a critical point in negotiations. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov likely threw cold water on the overture, telling reporters in Moscow, quote, currently such prospects are not visible, end quote. Some assessment here. Putin will happily say yes because he believes the rightful owner is the Russian Federation. With Kyiv holding the initiative across the entire front and more war crimes discovered, we can't see Ukraine negotiating anything right now. Slovenia and Germany have approved a circular trade deal to provide Ukraine with 28 M55S medium tanks. Prime Minister Robert Golob and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz agreed to provide Slovenia with 40 German-made light infantry vehicles in exchange for the tanks, which will go to Ukraine. The M55S is based on the Soviet-era T-55, but underwent extensive upgrades in the 1990s to turn it into a, quote, Franken-tank. The Soviet 100mm main gun was replaced with a NATO-specification 105mm howitzer, Israel further massaged the boomer generation tank by adding ERA blocks to improve the armor, modern electronics and radios, night vision, laser ranger finders, and improved sights with motion stabilization. In tank versus tank warfare, the M55S will likely be no more effective than the Russian T-62s deployed in July, but they may have one advantage. As a 35-ton medium tank, with tracks only slightly smaller than the bread-and-butter T-72 tanks Russia and Ukraine are using now, the M55S may be more Rasputitsa-resistant. Quick sidebar, Rasputitsa is mud season, which is quickly approaching. 
Germany announced that four more PHZ 2,155 mm self-propelled howitzers, those are SPGs, would be delivered to Ukraine. Defense Minister Christine Lambrecht said that together with the howitzers supplied by the Netherlands, 22 SPGs had been transferred to Ukraine. That's almost enough to support four batteries. Key weapon-producing countries typically put conditions on their weapon sales, such as requiring permission if a nation wants to sell or transfer equipment to a different nation. This isn't an uncommon practice, but one nation, Israel, has been particularly inflexible. The Israeli government has blocked the sale of reconnaissance drones, despite Iran selling combat drones to Russia. They've also blocked the sale of the Iron Dome anti-rocket defense system. Outside of Israel, Italy, Poland, and Germany attempted to transfer Spike MRLR anti-tank missiles to Ukraine, with Tel Aviv blocking all three nations. The United States attempted to intercede on Germany's behalf, and Israel vetoed the transfer in May 2022. The IT Army of Ukraine hacked the website of PMC Wagner Group. In its place, they put a pop-up message and graphic photos of dead Wagner mercenaries from across Ukraine. The website had been partially restored at the time of recording. If you start hearing rumors that the United States has provided Ukraine with Atacams missiles with a range of 310 kilometers, you can blame the pro-Russian account Rybar for spreading the rumor to their 900,000 followers. Let's shift to Russian mobilization and military status. The Russian state Duma has taken up a measure to consider the measures of military, quote, mobilization and, quote, martial law. Adopting the resolution does not compel President Vladimir Putin to act. The vote may have been taken up to appease the growing chorus of voices dissatisfied with the direction of the, quote, special military operation and attempt to compel Kyiv to come to the negotiating table. In Russian-occupied Yenkiv, Military deferments given to 500 steelworkers at the Iron and Steelworks plant were cancelled. According to local officials, the workers have already been forcibly mobilized. The Russian Ministry of Defense continues to destroy its own military from within. Four new motor infantry battalions are being formed in the eastern district of Russia to bolster the 36th Separate Motor Rifle Brigade and the 29th Combined Arms Army. The battalion's officers are military instructors from the Far Eastern Higher Combined Arms Command School. Some assessment here. Russia has been gutting its military academies for officers to command within Ukraine. The loss of experienced military instructors will take a generation to replace. Worse, the hastily formed battalions are undertrained, which will likely cause friction among their officers. Occupation authorities in Mariupol have increased the number of street patrols and checkpoints, seeking men who fled from the pre-February 24th borders of the Donetsk People's Republic to avoid forced conscription. Resistance channels report that conscription-aged men are moving into the areas occupied after February 23rd to avoid DNR, quote, recruitment units. However, the DNR's promise not to forcibly mobilize citizens who live in regions captured by Russia after February 23rd is likely at an end. In Russia-occupied Pokrovsk, in Donetsk, southwest of Mariupol, DNR officials reportedly rounded up all men aged 18 to 40 from their homes, loaded them on a bus, 
and took them to Donetsk to join the ranks of the 1st Army Corps. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is graphic detail in today's report, and if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. We have good news as the lead story for a change. With President Erdogan working as the mediator, Ukraine and Russia have agreed to exchange 200 prisoners of war. The announcement came from Erdogan, however it was not confirmed by Ukraine or Russia at the time of recording. A disturbing photo from Izum was circulated of a decomposed arm with a yellow and blue bracelet still on its wrist discovered in the mass grave just west of the city. That wrist belonged to a person, and that person had a name. The body has been identified as 36-year-old Sergei Sova, a Ukrainian soldier with the 93rd Brigade. Sova left behind a wife and two children. The exhumation of bodies in Izum continues, and the discoveries continue to be objectively horrible. Yevhen Yenin, Deputy Minister of Internal Affairs of Ukraine, said, quote, We are continuing to find numerous bodies with marks of violent death, including broken ribs and skulls, men with hands tied behind their backs, with broken jaws, and with their genitals cut off. End quote. Recently liberated residents reported that Russian occupation forces wouldn't allow the dead to be buried. This is consistent with the Russian military actions in Irpin, Bucha, and Mariupol. Ukrainian officials report they have found 168 civilian bodies since the beginning of the counteroffensive, and there are reports of more mass grave sites in the forests around Izum. The Russian Federation transferred the remains of 25 Ukrainian soldiers. It is reported that Ukraine holds as many as 8,000 dead Russian soldiers in refrigerated railroad cars. The Russian Ministry of Defense has refused to collect the remains of most of the troops killed in action in Ukraine, complicating and delaying efforts from family members to receive survivor benefits. On September 15th, a resident of Mariupol filmed a small group of protesters who assembled on Victory Street on the left bank of Mariupol. The area has not had electrical or natural gas service restored since the fall of Azovstal on May 12th. The residents protested the announcement that no further efforts would be made to restore electricity, the thermal plant, or the natural gas service. DNR occupation leaders claim that Russia will provide individual electric heaters for residents, which require electricity to work. According to resistance leaders, the chief engineer of the Mariupol Thermal Network resigned after the protest. Additionally, the man who recorded the one-minute-long video has been arrested. In geopolitical news, Denis Pushilin, the self-declared leader of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, and his counterpart in Luhansk, Leonid Pasechnik, have requested the Kremlin immediately begin a referendum for annexation by the Russian Federation. Separatist leaders are panicking over the deteriorating security situation and their inability to reconstitute combat-effective armies. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR and the 2nd Army Corps of the LNR are combat-destroyed. Let's shift to assessment here. It is almost certain that the Kremlin will reject the request. 
neither oblast is fully occupied, and administrative control was never established over the Luhansk oblast in July. Annexing only the areas established by the Minsk II agreement would be the equivalent of Moscow admitting defeat. With Ukraine already fighting in the Donbass, even if a sham referendum was done and passed, it's not like it suddenly becomes, hey, you're now at war with Russia. Moscow would have to request Ukraine to withdraw from the annexed territory, which would likely only be recognized by a handful of nations. Kyiv will never recognize the referendum and declaration, leaving Russia with no viable options to enforce annexation. Further, if Moscow were unconcerned with the security situation and the success of the, quote, special military operation, they would have moved forward with the sham vote on September 11th as planned. Russia announced that, yes, we will be moving forward with the vote. Dmitry Medvedev, the deputy chairman of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, is convinced that holding the vote will allow Moscow to claim that attacks are now happening to the Russian Federation. Additionally, the Russian-appointed leaders of Kherson announced they want a referendum too. Apparently, the referendum will be done electronically, and they'll ask friendly nations to come and observe the election. However, they didn't announce a date, and we'd like to remind our readers and listeners that Russia turned off the internet in all of Luhansk Oblast and most of Kherson. Vladimir Osechkin, the founder of Gulagu.net, an organization that documents systemic torture in Russia, survived an assassination attempt. Osechkin is exiled due to his work and lives in Biarritz, France. Russian state media was outraged by Yanis Sartz, the director of the NATO Strategic Communications Center, or NATO Stratcom, for wearing socks with the phrase, quote, I'm trampling Russia on them. In an act that could be called projection, they accused Sartz of having fascist inclinations by wearing socks while making Holocaust comparisons because, of course, they did. What else do we expect at this point? Since we're covering faux outrage, the alleged Russian channel The Devil Walks in Dixie shared a video of a woman buying Halloween decorations, saying how bags of skeleton bones resembled Russian soldiers. Russian state media and social media channels are having a field day, claiming this is proof that Ukrainians and their supporters who celebrate Halloween are Satanists. That's right, Votniks and Tankies. No more Halloween candy for you. An editor's note, though. If you believe a Russian-language telegram channel named The Devil Walks in Dixie, with a stated mission to, quote, monitor satanic activity across all continents, end quote, is not a parody or a troll account, we have some definitely intact and fully functional, not-at-all-on-fire Russian-occupied bridges to sell you. And in economic news, three McDonald's locations reopened in Kyiv, although for now they are delivery only. The ruble was unchanged at 60 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices rose slightly, with WTI crude trading at $85 a barrel and Brent at $92 a barrel. RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market opened at $2.49 a gallon, or 66 cents a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures dropped to $8.35 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates.
Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.